all right. No need to panic. I wasn't panicking. I know. I was talking to myself. Because all this is very wrong. Right. What do we know? This mirror is a direct portal between two worlds. We went into it in the real world. We came out of it in this world. But that anti-zone sprung up in the middle, splitting the portal in two. The buffer zone between the two worlds. Exactly. Because anti-zones only exist where the fabric of the universe is under huge, terrible threat. Oh. So that means that one must be to stop this world and your world from ever touching. Wait, but that means that this world is dangerous. But how can it be dangerous? Also, what even has the power to create a copy world like this? Unless... Oh, no actual way. No actual way what? I've told you about the solid track, right? Literally never heard the word before. Solid track? Solid track? It's a theory, a myth, a bedtime story my gran used to tell me. You had a grandmother? I had seven, but Granny Five, my favourite, used to tell me about the solid tract. Because in the beginning, pre-time, pre-everything, all of the laws and elements and nuts and bolts of the universe were there. Light, matter, maths and so on. But they couldn't fit together properly because the solid tract was there. So what is the solid tract? Consciousness and energy. Our reality cannot work with solid tract energy present. The most basic ideas of the universe just get ruined. Think of it like a kid with chicken pox, nuclear chicken pox, who wants to join in but always ends up infecting everyone else. Our universe cannot work with the solid tract in it. Your gran told you this is a bedtime story. Only when I had trouble sleeping. So, what did our universe do? It managed to exile the solid tract to a separate, unreachable existence. The solid tract plane. And suddenly, everything makes sense. The universe could finally work because the solid tract had been removed. Hang on. Are you saying we are now on the solid tract plane? I wish I wasn't. I think I am. I'm scared. Are you scared? I'm genuinely terrified. This is a separate exiled universe that is also a consciousness. That's what Granny 5 said. A conscious universe. She also said that Granny 2 was a secret agent for the Zygons, but she seems bang on with this one. But why? Why has the solid track copied your wall, including Grace and Trina, and built a doorway to our universe? When you put it like that, it sounds like a trap. Who cares? Episode nine. It takes you away. What did you think of the first 80% or so of the episode, guys? I liked the anti-zone stuff, and I feel like it was almost disappointing when, because you had the whole episode with the lead up to the, oh, there's a monster in the woods and all this stuff, and then all of a sudden it just turned out to be a bad father. You know, okay, that's a bit further on, but I don't know how to feel about that, because it's like it feels like 
the first eighty percent is sort of like separate from not not first eighty percent. You know, the first bit is sort of separate from the last bit with all the sudden oh it's a conscious universe, you know, that was kind of like it almost fell out of nowhere. Does that make sense? Like you had the initial mm-hmm. bit saying, Oh yeah, yeah there's a monster and then suddenly it's a frog. That kind of gets to a lot of my issues with the episode, is it feels very disconnected. Like yeah. a lot of different stories going on. Yeah, it's like uh, when Han Han was under the table and she was like chanting, it takes you away. Like, wh- what relevance does that have to the rest of the episode? Because there wasn't a monster. And no- like, as far as I- she's aware, nothing took her father away. I mean, she suggests that the monster might have, but like, what does she actually have to. You know, it's like this. I can't tell if like maybe the the title came first and then they tried to build an episode around it because the title on its own has no relevance. Like the conscious universe doesn't take anyone away, like not literally, unless you mean like oh it takes them away and it encourages them to stay over there. But you know it, it's all kind of disconnected. It, there's nothing cohesive about it. So something that could have been a good episode ended up just being weird and not really. Uh, it didn't really flow together, basically. I think the disparity of elements of the episode like that, as well as the genuinely incredibly bad exposition, really points to this being a pretty a young writer, I would say. Yeah. Like, I know he hasn't done Doctor Who before. He's done a lot of skins and been a staff writer and stuff, I think. This really doesn't feel like a writer who knows what they're doing. Like, even in Kablam, for all the problems with its ending, mechanically that episode could give its characters each something to do and segment them up and yeah. knew how to deliver information well like if it really had to do an info dump it would do it in a way that made sense like have an annoying robot that gave info dumps deliver one it wouldn't just have characters spew them out for you know three minutes straight like it felt amateur to me in that sense what do you think gig I thought it was hilarious when she was chanting it takes you away under the table because that really gave away that it's literally just something that's in the episode because it sounds like the title of a horror movie and it's a creepy phrase so we're going to have her rocking under the table and saying it over and over because it's creepy and it's got fuck all to do with the plot line but regarding the broader criticisms in terms of being disjointed and disconnected and seeming a bit like it's you know a first Doctor Who script and amateurish in all those ways, I'm a bit more inclined to forgive it because yeah. at the end of the day, you know, there are worse crimes you can commit you can commit with a Doctor Who episode than having disparate, seemingly unrelated elements in it. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it, at the very least, it's juxtaposing things that you won't necessarily always see together. So at least it's something that you won't necessarily see on some random other show, which is more than I can yeah. say of nearly all of Series 11. Right, so don't take that as me gushing about the episode, but no, I think there are some virtues. It, it's saying, because like, uh, even saying, like, even when I can recognise there's maybe some criticism to say about how, how weird it sort of all fit together, I still actually enjoyed it. Um, I don't think it was a horrible episode or anything. Uh, I don't think it's anything that I'm going to remember, uh, you know, in any particular way, but I don't think it was bad. I thought it was like, out of series 11 so far, it's probably the most creative, you know, uh, because it was just so out there, you know, and it did throw things at as that we really didn't expect and maybe I didn't always handle them you know expertly but at least the writer I can tell he had some grand ideas which is you know more than can be said for like Chibnall with his giant spiders so you know I can't be too harsh on it because it was genuinely pretty fun I 
got off on the very wrong foot to this episode. As soon as it started, and we had the gang see a sheep, and 13 reference a woolly rebellion, and like, oh ha ha, that's funny, because it's implied that, you know, at some point in the future, humans will fight sheep or some shit. Yeah. And then she explains it, like, after the point where you would laugh, like, we have exposition for a joke. Like, what is going on? This isn't just explaining, like, the episode's concepts. This is explaining a joke we would have already laughed at if we got it. Like, uh, mm. it was like, insanity. It's, like, it's kind of encapsulates the whole problem with series 11, though. Everything just gets over-explained, you know, things that even... You know, the doctor makes a statement and it's pretty obvious what she means. She has to go on for a further five minutes to explain it in excruciating detail. Like, the audience doesn't need that. There's nothing that's shown to them, uh, sort of visually. There's nothing that's shown to them, you know, that's not immediately explained. And part of the sort of magic of Doctor is sometimes there are just weird things and there is no explanation for it in a sense. Um, or at least that's, that's what I enjoy in it. I know not everyone will feel the same. So, when you see something in the show and immediately the doctor has to go on this big long uh lecture essentially telling you what it is and why it's there and what's you know what's it's, what it's doing like it almost takes some of the ma- uh, magic away because nothing's left up to the imagination anymore you know you're just told you know what to believe and what to think and i don't know i'm not a big fan of it i don't like all this exposition in series 11. the, the sheep line the one thing that saved it for me is the detail that it's an utter bloodbath because that's just fun to imagine <laughs> So, it's still not a good joke, but yeah, yeah, I like that detail, but that's the only bit I like. Can you imagine if in 12's era, all those browser history jokes got an extra three sentences explaining (laughs) what the actual comedy was? Oh no, I mean, I don't think we'd get it past the censors, to be honest. Uh, But yeah, it, it would ruin it, you know, because sometimes the funniest part of the joke is the fact that it's not explained. And I think, um... I mean, sure, the bloodbath thing is amusing, but I think, the, for example, the Willy Rebellion joke, it would have been fine just leaving it up to the viewer's yeah. imagination, you know, because, because you know, she goes on to explain, oh, yeah, the sheep rise up or whatever. She didn't have to do that because even just saying Willy Rebellion implies so much. And and even if the viewer's li- listening and they assume the Willy Rebellion to be something completely different to what she eventually explained it to be, it, like, it'd still be amusing in their mind because it's a joke, you know? And... I don't know, it's like it's like over-explaining a joke and then killing it, you know? How much of this stuff do you think is down to Chibnall potentially rewriting the script? Because I wonder if that whole joke was inserted by him. I think some aspect of this might have been handled by Chib. Well, in some episodes, like for example, when like Rosa and stuff, and even Demons, there's some moments that you feel they feel sort of disconnected and lines that feel disconnected, like uh, Demons yeah. of the Punjab, the injected bit about hope and all that. I don't know if that was uh, Vinny, but... Um, it felt very Chibnall, you know, and it's uh, it's like he was trying to like, pull everything to, towards uh, this overarching idea of hope and demons. Uh, I don't know what he would be doing with uh, this joke if he inserted it himself, but, you know, I wouldn't put it past him. But it is a writer's room, so theoretically every single episode uh, Chibnall has a hand in, you know? It's just hard sometimes to tell where that was maybe that's just me i'm not really good at recognizing certain writer quirks unless they're really obvious something else i feel falls into the sleep category and um, the sheep category even was the um, graham sandwich neil i know you really hated that bit with um graham oh. pulling out the sony then explaining why he has it on him logistically there are so many problems with this 13's tardis is only one room we are never given any indication of other rooms 
So how did he make the sandwich? <laughs> a food replicator. Not gonna have one of those. That food machine. Maybe just everything's in the console. She's got a biscuit maker, a sandwich maker, you know, cake maker. She's feeling a bit more peckish. But um, it's true. We don't we don't really see any more of her TARDIS. And I guess there's the implication, that, you know, because there's the big gaps in the walls. I guess there's the implication that you can walk behind there to get to other rooms. But we don't actually know until we get an episode where we see one of them walking out. You have to assume it's just the console room right now. What it might be is, oh. do you remember in the Husbands of River Song where she opens a roundel and there's brandy in there? Oh, yeah, but, but all the roundels, aren't they like big gaps in them? And I don't remember. What does, what does our charges look like? I think it has gaps. Is there a sandwich roundel? Maybe. I hope so. Maybe one of those filthy pipes on the new console just pumps out beer or something and just get all sorts of food from that yeah. wreck of a console. Speaking of things that are wrecked what did you think of ryan using his familial experiences to try and uh work out what was going on with the girl uh i don't know how to feel about that because it's like um i can understand the idea behind it because clearly uh ryan has some sort of well has bitterness towards his father um and it's been explored in previous episodes got to be honest here i didn't watch all of the, the what's his face conundrum because I got really bored with it I've still not watched the rest of it but I know that that's sort of covered with the whole like the pregnant alien and stuff like the idea of oh you know he has these lingering sort of resentments and stuff that he's yet to make peace with um so I get I guess that it makes sense uh I guess it makes sense that he would get annoyed at any father that for whatever reason is gone but at the point that he makes that judgment in the episode, as far as anyone's aware, there is a monster. So it was completely, it was very, very rude of him to make that judgment in the first place because, you know, uh, obviously he was proved right by the episode, which which I don't know if that's good because it's like, oh yeah, your father is really, really shit and he doesn't love you, you know, uh, and he's ran away to, to go have another life and, he, and he's like trying to relate to her, I guess. But, I just thought it was like it was like uh, so badly handled, you know, because it, it just made Ryan seem like an asshole. Uh, because because fair enough, if they'd like sort of uh, things had progressed and it started to maybe the monster thing didn't really add up, and it was and then doubt started to creep in, and it was like maybe he did run away. But no, from the from the very beginning, he was like, yeah, your father's fucked off. I'm so sorry, you know. Even though at that point in time, as far as they were aware, there was something out in the woods, and it was stealing people. So. I don't know, I, and I don't like that the episodes again proved him right that the Han's father did leave her because I, I don't know what point that was trying to make there, you know. I found it unintentionally very funny, like the moment <laughs> Ryan chimed in with that, and I, and strangely, I almost kind of liked that you could see how it was obviously his own experience with his absent father that led yeah. him to this incredibly bleak and nihilistic conclusion about her father, and almost. Unusually for series eleven, they didn't spell it out. They just let you kind of assume that. I'm not so no, good talking. Yeah, again, but I wonder, I wonder if this episode like, will run over an hour as well. well. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a bit it's four in the morning. What's this? I've never seen, seen this button on this before. Traverse anti zone. I wonder what happens if I click it. <laughs> the 
energetic sources of inspiration for this one, and in some ways they have potential, but I don't know what to say other than... Oh my god, god. Well, I travelled travel to another, another universe. Again, a whole other podcast, podcast recording. What did they say? Douglas Adams who would be good if season 17 wasn't mostly shit, and so on. There was one scene I thought which really demonstrated how the dialogue for this series has taken kind of a hit in quality. Maybe you could pull that up for me so the listeners know what I mean. Something's going on here, Graham, and I'm going to find out what's going on. But in order for me to find out what's going on, I have to find out what's going on. Question is, what's going on? Oi, Doc, I'm getting pretty hungry, yeah? Why don't you zap that thing with your sonic gizmo if you catch my meaning? Great idea, Graham. But just to be thorough, I'll also sonic the opposite wall and a cross-section of the ceiling on the way. just like one of me tasers I use when I'm out on the beat. Because I'm a police officer. Good question, Yaz. I love Yaz. I should buy a Yaz. Oi, I'm getting kind of tired of standing around waiting for you lot to exposit. My legs are getting restless. I suppose you blame that on the dyspraxia as well. That's actually a pretty hurtful thing to say. Oh, you love it. So yeah, I think something was really off with that scene, and I think it's sort of endemic of Series 11's problems as a Can I travel back to my universe's podcast? He thinks all fathers are a bit shit. So, like, I don't know, is it, is it meant to be like a sort of, um... Uh, wow. call it? I'm gonna stick around thing, here a while. Like to parallel against him accepting Graham at the end. Like is that is that meant, meant oh, to be yeah. what it is? Because oh, t- it, it comes off really bizarre. Um Although speaking of that, I can't believe they've they've uh, covered the granddad thing already, you know? Yeah, this was the finale, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean and it came out of nowhere. Back. With the, well, the thing is, like, we've had no actual like real story arc this series, ex- excluding the possibly the stanza, which you know, who Tim Shaw might come up in the finale, you know, God only knows. But, um, but the only concrete sort of story arc we've had is the conflict between Ryan and Graham, and the refusal for, of Ryan to accept Graham as his granddad. So, so to have it all resolved before the finale, it's kind of like. There is nothing to resolve, you know. Everything, everything that's going to happen in the finale is is going to be something that's brought up completely new, you know. I mean, aside from maybe timeless child stuff, I guess um, we've had no other references to that. I can only assume the finale is going to deal with that because otherwise, what was the point of introducing it unless Chibnall plans it for series twelve or something? Um, but we're set in a point where we we don't have any real story arcs to like, not any proper story arcs to conclude. So the finale is just kind of another episode. So. Uh, it could have been early on, you know. Uh, I don't see any any reason that to disbelieve that the battle of whatever it's called. I don't even remember the name of it. Ranskolav Kolos. <laughs> That's the one. It was really good. Uh, I don't see any like evidence to suggest that it is definitively a finale, you know. So it could very well have been on like been earlier, especially if like theoretically if it's the Stenza, the sniper bots, which is 
what people are theorizing i don't know for sure because you know you don't really get a good look at things in the trailer but theoretically he sends the sniper bots and maybe deals with the timeless child which means that because none of those things have been referenced in quite a few episodes this finale could have went on earlier in the series because it's not like they were referenced since the ghost monument all of these things this basically functions as a finale because it pays off yeah the only stuff that can be paid off which is yeah. uh grief over grace and ryan and but that feels like it was uh, all yeah this yeah that uh, was all dealt with here so i don't i and don't badly know. in my opinion <laughs> yeah badly it was kind of um i don't know i appreciate that like it tried to do this idea of like graham like letting go of grace and all that stuff but but it doesn't feel satisfying because the storyline wasn't really built up in any meaningful way in the first yeah. place and ryan didn't get to interact with grace at all it was so weird oh that was that was like even not even a goodbye like okay maybe it'd been um because it was really bizarre didn't didn't he get to- told about grace after like when they all came back and oh yeah grace was there you know um yeah <laughs> It would have been good if maybe uh, Ryan, for example, Ryan would stand in maybe a, like a, a brief scene where like, just before the conscious universe gets, you know, separated from ours, maybe Ryan is standing in the mirror and before the mirror like shatters and everything, he looks through and Grace is standing there, you know, even if just something like that where he gets to see her and actually know that she was like sort of physically there. Like, I think it would have been, uh, I don't know. It would have been better than that him just sort of like awkwardly finding out afterwards and then not really having a reaction to it. I don't remember he had any significant reaction. Maybe it's I'm wrong. Like, it's story hostile not to have a character interact with their like deceased yeah. parent figure in a story nominally about that. Like it's just such a weird script choice. This is kind of a part of a pattern in series 11 of Graham's grief being prioritized over Ryan's, I think, when it comes to Grace. Yeah. Because, you know, in Arachnids, we got, you know, Graham seeing Grace's ghost and Ryan doesn't mention her barely at all. You know, and then obviously in episode one, you had Graham's huge tragic funeral eulogy. And, you know, Ryan's just sort of stands in the room for a bit. And I mean, he gets his YouTube video, but just throughout the series, they seem mm-hmm. to care more about, in general, more about Graham's character arc than Ryan's. And also on the other front, of Ryan kind of accepting Graham as his granddad. That came out of absolutely nowhere because Ryan and Graham have no meaningful interaction in this episode. Yeah. So it's like, it seems a bit like Ryan starts being nice to Graham out of pity because he found out that Graham saw Grace. And it's like, well, really? Is that, that's all it took? Yeah. And also, like, because he never saw Grace, there was no, like, chance for Ryan to All right, enough of this universe for now. Let's check out the other one. Over the course of the episode, it would have made perfect sense for Ryan's cynicism to be solidified. To the extent that it has to. Sure, he recognises that he hurt Hannah's feelings, but he of course was proven right that Hannah's father packed up and left. Ryan should end this episode with his scepticism of father figures vindicated, not suddenly deciding to call Graham his granddad. Or are we seriously supposed to believe that Eric's limp one-line reconciliation with Hannah is what restores Ryan's faith in parenting? Can we expect Ryan's dad to come back in the coming weeks only for Ryan to completely forgive and absolve him? Alright son, let's go out for some Wi-Fi. Oh, thanks Pops, maybe you're right underneath it all. Honestly, in comparison to this, the Serenga conundrum is looking like a far better story about Ryan's relationship to fatherhood. What kind of sick joke is it that Ryan's trip in the TARDIS has consisted so far of violent racism, abusive warehouses, and deadbeat dads? And this series is making us swallow the idea that the Doctor is showing love and hope in the universe to her friends. 
Underneath its veneer of optimism and flowery morals, Series 11 deep down is more misanthropic in regards to its characters than Russell's or Stevens ever managed to be. Back to the other side. is supposed to be that through Han and his, his interactions with Han uh, that he sort of learned to appreciate that Graham's there for him which I guess makes sense but ultimately the episode so, so he starts out um, he starts out criticising a father figure thinking you know essentially making it clear that he thinks that fathers and father figures are useless and will always abandon you and all this stuff um, because that's his experience you know uh, and maybe that's why he doesn't want to get close to Graham I mean this is all assumptions because we've never been told this or shown this um, maybe this is why he has this complex because he's uh, he's worried that Graham's going to abandon him just like his actual father did so um, so maybe it's like through Han he sort of learns to appreciate he's like oh yeah Graham's here and he hasn't abandoned me therefore now I will accept him but but the episode essentially goes on to prove the fact that uh, that Han's father was abandoning her, that he was just a shitty dad. So what in that gives Ryan hope, you know? Because if anything, it just confirmed his fears, which was essentially that her father left her like his father left him. So how does that translate him into the end going, oh, yeah, I, I fully completely trust Graham now, even though... <laughs> even though everything I believed was just confirmed to be true, you know? It just, it doesn't seem to go together. I feel like maybe if there'd been scenes between, or again, meaningful interaction between them, it would have made sense. But instead it was just sort of like tacked on at the end and you're meant to feel a warm and fuzzy inside when you've been given no reason to, you know? Could it be related to the sandwich? <laughs> yeah, the sandwich was the true heart of the episode. Ryan takes so much pity on Graham for just keeping that rotting sandwich in his jacket pocket for weeks on end. <laughs> I mean, uh, theoretically, if if there had been more interaction between Graham and Ryan, and perhaps so, if like the episode is essentially about an absent father, right? Aside from the conscious universe stuff, you've essentially got an episode about an absent father. If Graham, if Ryan had witnessed Graham essentially being a, f- a better father figure than sort of the, the one that was referenced in the episode which is Ryan's dad and the one we actually saw in the episode then maybe like Ryan could go oh shit not not all of them are bad you know but he never got to see that he never got to see for example Graham's sacrifice either because Graham essentially uh even though it would never have worked out because the universe was collapsing and all this rubbish, uh, Graham effectively gave up the love of his life and a chance of happiness with her, you know, for the sake of Ryan. And, yeah. you know, so so that sacrifice is obviously meaningful on Graham's part, but Ryan never got to witness it. I mean, he gets to- told about Grace afterwards, but he never really actually understands. He's never told or is given any reason to indicate how much of a big deal it was for Graham, you know? I don't know, I just think if he'd been there to witness Graham having this conflict within him and then eventually essentially choosing Ryan, it would have endeared Graham to Ryan in a way that it would have made sense for him to suddenly go, oh yeah, you're my granddad now, you know? I just feel like a, a part of, big part of the issue was just Ryan not being present and maybe if he'd swapped Yaz out for Ryan and had Ryan in the sort of... Uh, Saw the tract instead of Ra- Yaz. She was there, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. Um, <laughs> not that yeah. she was very present, mind you. Easy to forget. Um, like, but then again, you wouldn't have this this interaction between Han and Ryan. You know, 
uh, I don't know, it was just like weirdly handled. There's a lot of potential here and it just wasn't cohesive, you know? The way to handle the grime stuff better might have been to link back to Rosa a bit. Do you remember this oh. scene in the oh, hotel room where Graham like kind of embraces to the side 13 with the implication that they're a couple? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Could this not have provided kind of a salve to his ultimate rejection of Grace? Do you see where I'm going here? No. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I'm not quite sure where you're going with this. Could the Yaz stuff be a red herring and the real ship of the series indeed be <laughs> 13 and Graham? Oh, so Ryan, Ryan gets his mother figure and his father figure <laughs> in one go. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Well, it's certainly a family, but... Um, I think, in a way, uh, 13 does act as a mother figure to Ryan. Like, I know you're kind of joking, but um, I don't think it's like in a, in a ship sense, but I do think uh, 13 is very much sort of like a mother figure without intending to be, just like the previous Doctors would have been a father figure, you know? But because Ryan already has the father figure in Graham now, you've essentially got 13 fulfilling this other role, intentionally or not. And not always, because it's not that sort of dynamic, but... Uh, no, 13 clearly wasn't enthused by Graham and Rosa, so uh, I think your ship's dead, sunk, I'm so sorry. It's a shame, because given the lack of hierarchy, we could have had a polygamous series, you know, where both <laughs> oh the Yaz gosh. and the Graham ships are paid off. It's a very oh flat sexual structure, as in oh which dear. one does we put it. <laughs> Oh god, they're all just in a relationship with each other. Except for Ryan and Graham, obviously. Jesus Christ, don't think about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a bit uh, Let's maybe... Uh, let's get off this topic. Yeah, so anyway, the character interactions <laughs> and developments in this episode were an afterthought with little meaningful yes. connection to the main story. Is that what we're saying? Agreed. Yes. Speaking of no meaningful connection to the main story, although I suppose you could argue that it, that it kind of felt weird to have the anti-zone like I get the idea um, behind the it anti-zone. The, the, the anti-zone just did not mesh with the rest of the episode and you also had ribbons who yeah, um, what was the point of him I really liked how Ellie uh, that's my pet name for Andrew Ellard uh, oh, described yes. the anti-zone as a sub golem doing a homage to it <laughs> is all yeah. we've got and tension free caves that feel like a direction issue because yeah the balloons the moths, the golem acting dude, like a troll, with yeah. you know the red balloon, Pennywise stuff. It's like such none of this goes together even in itself. Yeah. It's directed so weirdly and flatly and with like no tension. And also, we've seen pictures of that foreskin monster that Nilso really likes, and he wasn't even <laughs> in the episode. So, yeah, like yeah. I don't know where that could have fit in either, you know, because you've already got so much going on in the anti-zone. Like the idea of like, oh, it's, it's pitch black and then there's moths and then ribbons like pissing about with his rats. You know, there wasn't really any space for that big monster. So I don't know, like I get why it was cut now because it really, it wouldn't have fit. And what sort of extra threat could it add beyond moth eat, uh, flesh-eating moths, you know, you know? Speaking of issues in the anti-zone, what was the deal with the string that went nowhere? Like, it was set up yeah. as really important that they had that string and then it wasn't even yeah. important in the end. They just ran home the right way in the end anyway. <laughs> yeah, because the string was there and then, then ribbons cut out and the implication would be like, oh shit, they'll never get home now. But they did, you know? I mean, also there was the issue where they accidentally went to the wrong uh, mirror, which obviously ended up resulting in them 
solving the entire episode so it was actually a good thing but the the end when we're meant to believe the anti-zone is this big labyrinth of tunnels and caves and if you get lost you'll never get home but it's a corridor you know it's a corridor yeah it's a literally a straight line they just go back and forth from it because the plot requires them to on the subject of stuff that was cut out in the foreskin monster i was wondering maybe the third act when characters are constantly getting thrown in and out of the anti-zone and then just doing nothing for several minutes i wonder if maybe the the cut material was all in that bit and maybe there was some whole extra mini arc in the anti-zone where the the foreskin monster hoovers up all the flesh moths and they have some (laughs) wacky adventure with it while the drama's happening yeah, Big Finish world. is gonna handle that. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't Brandon's know. This was really underdeveloped. Like we never got why he was there. The whole his own stuff was so like underdone. Like, what was the actual deal? Yeah. Why does he have language? Why does he know it's called the anti-zone? What, 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 you know? What is he trading there? Who with? Why did he act like Razor the entire episode? <laughs> Good point. I, I, like, he did feel like that, didn't he? Like, like, I don't know. I don't know. Nobody else really seemed to notice it or comment on it, but for some reason, it's just his sole personality uh, was just very reminiscent of Sim and World Enough in Time. And I don't know why that is. Even just like visually, I mean, aside from the fact he was an alien instead of, you know, a human, visually, he reminded me of Razor. Like everything about him was just very Razor esque. And I, I don't know. I don't know if that's just like sheer coincidence or what. It'd be so fun for a role like this just to cast someone like Jeffrey Beavers or Alex McQueen just oh to twinge the fans a bit. Oh, that would have been great. I get the sense that on paper, maybe in um, Ed Heim's imagination, the anti-zone was some incredibly captivating netherworld full of interesting creatures and curious life forms and mystery and wonder and horror and fear. And because this is Doctor Who, it translates onto the screen as a corridor made out of rocks with some bugs in it and one guy wandering around. Right? And it's one of those things where all the magic just gets slowly sucked out because they don't know how to convey it. Yeah. have the money. Yeah, you, you need a good director and even a good writer to make corridors work. Like, think of the Doctor's wife and how much it does with, like, a repeated corridor. But it worked well in that case. Yeah. Also, the Doctor's wife, you've got on the two human kind of patchwork people who live in House's world, right? That, through the, just that, that little bit, you get a whole kind of sense of that weird gamer-esque kind of environment. Yeah, and reusing costumes and reusing sets, like that episode saves tons of money and still manages to feel really huge and creative but this one it cuts out what it does spend money on like foreskin that made me think you know when you're talking about it not really translating well to screen do you think theoretically this story um and the idea behind it would have worked better in another medium you know where they had like more space and it was more reliant on the the imagination rather than seeing it for example like a book Mm. or an audio you make a decent book i think yeah, it would have worked better with a different writer. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> some of the ideas but, are but solid, I mean, like, but yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like, just things like the anti-zone and stuff, I think they would have worked better in a sense, in a way that you couldn't see them, you know? Because uh, there was no way they were going to build... If theoretically the anti-zone was meant to be grander and scarier than what we actually got, um, I don't think showing it on screen was the best thing. You know what it might have worked well as is a comic. Because yeah. you could have done interesting stuff with the mirroring, like with panels oh, across yeah. two pages, and then exactly. you could have gone wild yeah. with the Annie Zone as well. That would have been good. Like there's, there is, um, 
I think it was quite an ambitious story. They didn't have the time, money or good writing to handle it. You know, it was a story that had good ideas, but it just didn't work. My, my issue with the ambition is I feel like we're really calling one or two scenes ambitious. Like mm, it's pretty much yeah. just all compressed to like the last seven minutes. Like we have 40 minutes before that and they're really badly paced and they have a bunch of shitty super expository dialogue that goes on way too long like with the ribbon stuff and even when we get into the good stuff like 13 takes forever to define what's going on just as she lists off what she understands like the frog stuff if we're getting towards that now like that is evocative and that is interesting but that's not the episode that's basically one or two scenes at the end the cgi frog yeah uh, why, why are people thinking it's CGI? It's definitely not CGI. There's nothing about that frog. There's CGI aside from the eye blinks. The blinks, yeah. I feel like the ambitious parts of the episode were just the anti-zone, which didn't really work very well and it didn't really have a place in the episode, I would say, because um, it's quite disconnected from the rest of it. Uh, and then there was obviously the solar track stuff at the end. Uh, how did you feel specifically about the the big exposition actually with the uh, thirteen explaining the solar track to Yaz? I nearly stopped that. watching at that point. Literally, I was yeah, ready that, to give up. It's one of the worst cases I've ever seen in uh, New Who, even in televised Doctor Who in general. It was three straight minutes. I timed it of just thirteen nonstop explaining. And what actually, I'm going to read out a post because there was a post on this. I remember I wanted to hear you two guys um, react to. So. Uh, it's, I think one of the reasons why 13 feels so off is because she always knows everything immediately. There's no period of her not knowing something and the audience figuring it out along with her throughout the episode. She just knows everything as soon as it's introduced and can prattle off five minutes of exposition about it. Like she's reciting the wiki page for it. Um, then it's some, someone counters that with, um, how she doesn't know anything like with the stenza and stuff. But I thought that rang pretty true to me that she just lists off like these wicked wicked wiki core articles on things and it's like i don't want to be told stuff i want to learn it along with her like yeah. like you know 12 the past doctors would find out something during the episode and they'd work it out as it went along like think about the silence or the angels or anything like that do you remember night terrors because do you remember in Night Terrors, right in last, the last five minutes of that, just as the peg people are about to kill everyone, the Doctor Eleven suddenly remembers exactly what George is and exactly what this kind of alien race is and rapidly oh, exposits all about it just in time for the power of love to save the day. It's that sort of writing. And, you know, people hate it for a reason. It's annoying. I wonder what is. You would think if they could hear now. Actual inner dialogue. Call me an NPC now, will ya? Let's check in on the other universe. One popular YouTube critic whose name I don't care to recall said that It Takes You Away was one of his favourite episodes ever, The Night of Transmission. The next day he decided it wasn't even the best of Series 11. This illustrates not only the complete lack of staying power this episode has, but also the latent hunger, even in some fans of Series 11, for Doctor Who to try its hand at idea-driven storytelling again. To the extent that this episode, after the previous eight, can give the illusion of being an all-time classic. Well, I'm gonna gonna make make, like the nesting consciousness and shunt off.
reliant on information that the audience has never given any indication even exists in the first place, you know, it just finds seems really cheap and and it's not fun, you know, to you're sitting there like what the fuck is going on? Then suddenly go the doctor just turns around and stares directly at the camera and tells you exactly what's going on, even though there has been no indication up until that point of of that being the sort of plot, if that makes sense. You know, because so the solar track bad example. Can can you can you imagine in heaven sent instead of the very slow deliberate trickle of us and twelve at the same time working out what's going on, if twelve just snapped to it like two thirds in <laughs> and stared to the camera and for three minutes just laid oh, out. This the, is a confession dial. Specifics. We used to use these on Gallifrey. <laughs> they use the torture device and they create simulations based on your worst fears. Um, I feel a huge part of all of this that we maybe haven't quite broached is that the interests of this script seem to lie heavily in explaining outlandish sci-fi concepts more than oh, necessarily yeah. doing them well. So it, it, it luxuriates a lot in explaining, oh, well, an anti-zone is when the universe creates buffer zones to make sure that uh, the fabric of space and time doesn't fall apart. Or the solar track is an entity, it was a sentient universe that did this and that. And I feel that's not necessarily ambitious so much as it is a certain aesthetic of sci-fi writing where the inherent elaborateness and batshitness of the concept being you know, described and at play is you know meant to be almost the appeal in itself even if it's not that yeah. appealing it's world building like this whole subs on reddit where people they don't write stories they just make up concepts for these fake worlds and like that's meant to be the story instead of any like actual narrative or characters in it yeah it's like ed himes just showing off these ideas he had rather than writing a story about them at the same time, this is a huge difference from the. This is quite different from the rest of Series Eleven, isn't it? Because most of Series Eleven has been decidedly not ideas driven, so it does make a bit of a change, even if it's not that much better. That's true. He probably came up with the idea to the anti zone in the solar tract, and then built something around it, because uh, which would sort of explain how disconnected it is. And then he maybe he came up with the title, and then was like, "Oh yeah, how do I fit all these three things together?" Because you know, it was his only script this season. Uh, series. It was his first Doctor Who script, and it's. I think maybe he went into it. He was like, "Oh, I've got all these great ideas. How can I fit them together in one sort of cohesive way?" Except it wasn't really mm. cohesive. Um, maybe, maybe in the belief that he was never gonna have to get to write for the show again, he was really excited about it. So he just threw it all together. When maybe the Anti Zone could have worked an episode on its own. Didn't the Anti Zone strikes me in some ways as kind of a torturey game, and he like. It's like a portal into the fae, like fairy world. Yeah. You know, close to a part from Rowan. It's, it's, yeah. Does that oh, make sense? Make it torturey? Do you know what I mean? I, I do see what you mean, but actually, just you made me think of something else. Um, you guys have, have either of you watched um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell no. by Peter, Peter Harness adaptation? Of the great Peter Harness? Yes. Our hopeful future showrunner. <laughs> yeah, so have you, have you watched that, Neo, at least? Has any, have any of you guys watched it? Okay, okay. It, well, basically in that, you've got this a, a, a zone, a bit like what you're talking about, this dark kind of world with all these passageways. It reminded me of that. Anyway, carry on. Was that, was that what you were going to say? She was just an aside, <laughs> just an aside. <laughs> yeah, there's another story that has corridors in it. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Some, something else, if we're talking about connectivity of this episode to other shows and things like that, is like the whole... Uh, concept or conceit of the stuff in the mirror worlds like uh, your dead loved ones are here but you can't go back um, angst about that um, Doctor Who 
I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but it's just interesting. Doctor Who did this quite a lot in Russell's era. Uh, Father's Day in Series 1, and then the Ultimate Universe episodes in Series 2, and then the Series 4 finale. Uh, uh, the same point, um, really, like the same moral dilemma. How do you think how Russell handled it and Cornell handled it was different to how this episode did it? Or how is it the same? One thing I will say is that in this episode, they're quite genre savvy. Like, they pretty much as soon as 13 and Yaz step into the mirror world, they work out that, okay, this is a mirror world. Uh, maybe Eric's got mirror married. Maybe it's some kind of parallel world, like in series two, remember, viewers? It's a bit like that. So it does seem like they've they've watched that story and they're building on what we already know. But yeah, no, RTD did it better. <laughs> Even in series four? Ah, uh, I barely well, remember. It's been years since I've last watched Russell T. stuff and that's... Ro- Rose got a tenant sex doll at the end to well, drag yeah. with her back yeah, to Of course universe. I remember that, but um, I don't know. I feel like even that was done better than this. <laughs> Actually, if, if we're criticising RTD, I mean, Series 2 has Jackie and Pete basically get, you know, alternate versions of each other to make up for the fact that their you know, spouses have died. It's like, you know, how much better is yeah, that, really? I still find that genuinely horrifying. It's yeah. like they erase the real versions of their partners just to pretend with these people they've never actually technically met, like, in their lives yeah. before. It's 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 an ugly thing. So, yeah, because it's a, se- a completely separate person and, you know, I don't know, I, I don't agree with just, that. Just, just like in Heaven Sent, the Doctor at the end is a completely different person to the Doctor we start with. Oh my gosh, we're having this argument. <laughs> I mean... I, I, I really stand by that, but I know it verges I mean, a lot of people. Technically it is, but okay, we're actually... Oh no, we're not going to get into this, but... I mean, <laughs> he does make the broom argument in his very first episode, and then Heaven Sent comes yeah. along. That's oh, true. Oh my god. Maybe yes. to save us going down this path, I have <laughs> yeah. a, a question. Don't let us, um, don't let us. I, something that I feel must have been done somewhere else in Doctor Who, or kind of the Who-verse, but I can't quite pinpoint my finger on where, is the idea of um, a reconstruction of someone's personality being used as you know a lure or a trap by kind of a sinister intelligence, but while not even knowing it themselves. Uh, I, feel Moffat, I feel Moffat has done that yeah. before. Um, Orton Rory. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good one. That's a good one. Also, maybe in a quasi sense with the um the Dalek puppets who still think they're human until they get activated. Mm. I'm so stupid. Twice upon a time, like testing yeah. the bill. Well, yeah, extremists. Yeah, extremists too. Yeah. See, it's, it's a moth rip off basically. As, as the person, their memories, you know, because you could, with the like solar track stuff. If you were in that situation, right, and theoretically with someone maybe equivalent to Greece or something like that, um. Would you be happy with with if you knew that they weren't if it wasn't actually the person? Like, no, nah, it's 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 yeah. not them. You can't because yeah. they, they die. Even if you brought them back, they still died. Like it's removing something that they were. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you, if you're taking memories is the big deal. You're just like cutting one out to try and make it keep going. Yeah, and it's like also uh, they're essentially under the control and being created by this thing that any at any moment could take them away from you, um, or change them completely. You know, they do, they essentially in a way don't have free will. You know, because they're not a person; yeah. they're an extension of a conscious universe. Although, well, you could apply. Yeah, you you could <laughs> apply that to yeah, yeah our universe. Oh shit, it's getting really really deep. Um, 
I don't know, but, but I think there's like maybe something a bit different. The fact that you're, mm. you're fully aware that the Soul Attract is like this conscious universe. We don't really know, like in our universe, if that's the case. It's never really. We you know. we did see. Speaking of Heaven Sent, Twelve acted the exact same way. These you know billions of copies of Twelve. So, although I guess he yeah. was kind of in a discrete universe in the Confession yeah. Dial, I like he not much really entropy much going on there. You know, it, it was like he did everything the exact same way because he didn't really have any other option so so if, but if you were looking at like a, a, a full-on like you know an entire universe laid out before you where there's like so many different choices you could make then i don't think it's really comparable yeah speaking of how the soul attract controlled like its manifestations in the universe something that really annoyed me with ryan not being in there was you know when it was doing like its force pushes yeah, Jedi yeah. Force Blast. <laughs> yeah. I, Ryan so would have made a Fuzrudar joke about it. Yeah, we need we need a game of representation. That. Like, this is just something that Series 11 has missed out on, except for in the Ghost Monument. We just don't have game of representation. It's absolutely shocking. Not please the Chibna. It's very important. Gamers rise up, etc. Um, <laughs> no, who's, who's the Veronica of this TARDIS team? He would have made a Star Wars show. Oh, because of the, the Force, right? Yeah. I understand now. Because, you know, Fisher does a shout. They didn't shout. Yeah, they yeah. just silently raised their hand and blasted them away. Yeah. I feel like that should have put pay to the whole, like, moral dilemma in the episode. Oh, it's really her. No, it isn't. She's just done a Star Wars move. Like, it's obviously yeah. fake. What did you think about the frog doing the Star Wars <laughs> I sort of loved that. That was cute. I mean, of course, 13 immediately um explained why it was funny like as soon as she gets blasted she says oh blasted by a frog brilliant oh mentioning the frog uh what's your opinion on the fact that the solar strike took the form of a frog instead of anything else like do you think that was good or bad or it you didn't know? even occur to me until i went on the redacted website after the episode that people might have expected it to be anyone else like river yeah. or susan or missy mm -hmm. or whatever like i get where they're coming from um it didn't occur to me like um, and especially in this series like that that wasn't going to happen but like i kind of see what they mean but did it need to tempt her like she already decided yeah, to stay it, in there it, it didn't have well. to. like i'm pretty sure it explains like it's like it shows frog because uh grace likes frogs and it likes frogs and i guess the doctor likes frogs but um i preferred it that it didn't take a certain person's form because essentially it's like uh it was better that it sort of took the form of something that represented the doctor's universe in a sense i mean i know it's a frog but the frog thing came from grace and all this so it could have been could have been anything but you know you had the frog necklace and stuff so i guess that's why but um i preferred the idea that it took something a sort of humble form you know um nothing big or flashy or necessarily connected to the Doctor because the Doctor has a lot of people that she loves in the main universe um, so it couldn't really take any specific form because how do you quantify that love and it might not necessarily understand it so I preferred that the idea that it took something so small and seemingly insignificant and it was really cute yeah, it was, it was better it had its own identity rather than try yeah. to become a, a law yeah. fest thing although I yeah, do think there was yeah. something a bit like lol so random about it <laughs> having you know uh, hold yeah. up spork i like frogs so i'm a frog now uh i think it would have been like if it had its if it taken like say the form of i don't know river or whoever um then people will be watching that scene sort of 
as the character instead of the universe, if that makes sense. Like if you had yeah. River standing there, so yeah. better that it took something that's unique so that nobody was oh. busy thinking you know, about the character. Who it should have been? Um, there's a character it could have been while still embodying that it was like a exiled separate universe that couldn't rejoin this one. Uh, yeah, there's totally a character it could have been while not undoing that. Uh, do we know who I'm talking about? Omega. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could that have worked? <laughs> Uh, I feel like it would, I mean, it would be interesting, but it'd be like, Chibnall never would, you know, he would never allow it, he would have shoot that, shoot that one down immediately. I think it would have been cool though, you know? There is a tone to consider. Yeah. We could have had the Don Warrington Rassilon from the end of the next life, where he's trapped in, uh, the Divergent universe. (laughs) Oh, that actually reminds me, I I keep seeing people, uh, Praise this episode because it reminds him so much of the diver- Divergent Universe from the eight audios. Did, did have a bit of that vibe. Uh, yeah, because like I mean the um, the Enter Zone and the Divergent audios was essentially uh, just a white space, yeah, you know. Yeah. And then Croker was described at one point as looking a bit like a frog. Hmm. <laughs> you know, I think it was just yeah, a pure coincidence. But yeah, if. If this had been a series t- 10 episode, who would the frog have taken the form of? Alpha Centauri? Hmm, that's a good question, because... Uh, Bill's mum? Bill's mum, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Bill's mum, why not? Uh, disembodied Nardole head. Yeah, just and Nardole, sitting on, a, sitting on a chair, just decapitated head. Uh, Mr. Hoddle. I imagine a, a sea devil or something. Moffat definitely would have opted for something like uh, lower heavy, I think. Probably, I don't know. I think the frog was fine on its own, and I don't, I don't, I don't imagine Chibna would have allowed anything actually lower heavy. Uh, I just thought I'm it was still surprised that in the fifth episode we got that quick little reel of like the silence and the Silurians and the angels oh, yeah. and stuff like that. I'm surprised we got that at all. It was very quick though. It's blinking, you miss it material. It's very but, do you remember the one in Time Heist? That was a bit slower, and that actually had yeah. some pretty cool. Absalom Dark. Yeah, that, that was a fucking what's his name episode. Stephen Thompson. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I doubt he well, had anything to do with Absalom Dark being in that reel of pictures, though. Yeah. Didn't Moffat have a hand in it as well? Oh yeah, uh, was it a co-write? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it's cool, right? Thompson I, and Moffat. Oh, cool. Every Stephen Thompson episode has been rewritten by Moffat. We just have to assume that as a yeah. default. Yeah, you need yeah. someone else to claw the racism out. Yeah. <laughs> God. Uh, Regarding the pitting thing, I feel like part of that was a bit of insecurity on the part of the production team. Like, oh my oh, god, guys, the pitting totally stands up with the rest of these iconic yeah. monsters. <laughs> the pitting definitely fits in. Yeah, that, that's what it felt like. They were trying, they sort of like, it's like they were anticipating that people would re- re- reject it. So they put that in the episode to the, you know, to make themselves feel better, even though people probably wouldn't it's, have it's, made that argument, you know? It's not that dissimilar an idea from having Matt Smith emerge from the montage of other Doctors at the end of um, the 11th hour. Yeah, but but that, I don't know, that felt like it worked because it's the Doctor, you know? He has all those people. Oh yeah. I get, that's, I that's get what fabulous. you mean though. I get and what also, you know, Matt Smith and the 11th Doctor was great, whereas the Pating is just the Pating, you know? I don't yeah, think people are quite that invested in it. Yeah. Fucking Pating. Um, I've got a question about the frog again. What do you think? Okay, this is a bit more heavy, but what do you think of this the uh, narrative that people are pushing? And and I know we've got the Doctor Who TV uh, 
review that says yeah. this. But I've also seen fans who maybe they have read this review and they've picked up on this as well, or they've just you know came up with it on their own. What is the the thoughts on this idea that the frog thirteen talking to the frog is LGBT representation? You know, what is what is the thoughts on that? I've got um, nothing against a sort of queer reading of 13 and the Solar Tract, but yes. if that's the best you can do for LGBT representation, something has gone wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah. The last I've... series, you know, we had ending with like an explicit lesbian relationship sealed with a kiss and everything. Like, yeah, I think we can do better than yeah, like <laughs> reading into a frog. And it is uh, a lot of reading because... Uh, I didn't pick up on this interpretation at all because it never, nothing about it felt like the flirting that some people are, you know, saying it. Maybe that's just me, you know, maybe I'm just a bit blind to it. I, I don't know um, what flirting these people are doing. But yeah, I, I don't really know because uh, it never felt like that sort of interpretation to me. But, you know, fair enough if people are getting that from the, the uh, episode and the scene, that's fine. You know, I'm not going to rain on the parade or anything because everyone takes it on their own sort of way. But I think. Exactly. See, if this is the best they can do, you know, do better, essentially. But especially because um, in this series, what have we had? Uh, what? I mean, the See, lesbian characters we have had all died. Yeah, uh, dead wives all over the place. I mean, Angstrom sort of survived. Yeah, Angstrom. But, yeah, well, okay. No, so she doesn't count. Uh, she she survived. Her de- her wife was dead. Uh, you had the one in Iraq and in the UK. She died. Um, so basically, you've just got this. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. it, basically. Yeah. Uh, so the representation is there, but uh, aside from Angstrom, but even mm. then she's con- connected to I think a dead we're wife. being a bit too negative here. After all, 2018 is not the year to criticise this. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I will say there was one line in the solo track bit where I could almost, I thought it might take a bit of a you know flirty route where, um, where 13 was like you didn't want a husband I thought she was going to follow that up with you want a wife but she didn't <laughs> and they they say they stress this whole oh we're friends but we're going to be friends I've made a new friend it's like it, I mean it's you know as yeah. far as you know a uh, relationship goes it's like it's so anti-romantic so it's really yeah, hard to put that reason w- would you call it a it? dead romance <laughs> oh, very oh funny gosh. very funny hilarious um but yeah, like if they were, if that was their intention, if that sort of reading was their intention, they didn't have to keep, uh, you know, using the word friend. Essentially, reasserting constantly that it was it was platonic between no homo. And the frog. Yeah, no homo, guys. The frog definitely doesn't want to kiss thirteen. Um, no kino, no kino. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like uh, that whole sort of reading was very bizarre to me. But you know, if it makes people happy, fair enough. I just expect more from Chibnall and the gang. You know, my issue with that whole frog conversation too was, it was like beyond compressed. Like we meant, I know people are yeah. taking a lot of meaning out of it, and that's great. But you know, I read the actual dozen lines that, com- you know, compromise what's actually going on, and it's just thirteen like suddenly going on about how cool it is that this is a conscious universe, and the frog is like, yeah, yeah it's pretty cool. And thirteen's like, well, I gotta fuck off though, and it goes, okay, that's sad, bye. Yeah. Like that's it's, I'm I'm not being that facetious, boiling it down to that because it's only like four times as many words as it's I just said. Basically, what it is, you know, and um, there's no sense to. I don't know. 
Like, the solo track gives in really easy, doesn't it? Like, there's no yeah. sense of a fight or a real struggle. Like, the Doctor has to try really hard mm. to persuade the frog. Yeah. It just gives up. What is, but, oh, well. what is specifically what 13 likes so much? Is it that it's a myth that's real? That there is some, like, anti-universe out there that can't join ours? Or is it that it's a conscious universe? Like, both of those are cool. Uh, which is it both? Like, what's so cool about it to her? I feel like it's probably more the the sentient universe thing. Just the idea of a, a massive concept, a rare phenomenon in the universe didn't, and stuff like that. Um, didn't the 50th novelization have the curator, or uh, the, the <laughs> doctor, um, go on about how, like, everyone is part of the sentient universe? Yes, like, but this, that this one doesn't idea. turn into a frog. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe 13 just really likes frogs. Like, I feel like this is something, this conscious universe idea is something that's probably been covered before like I, I can't think of any examples so i may be wrong here uh but certainly the idea of something very big and you know incomprehensible has been covered before you've had the conscious planets and stuff like mm. foreman's world and all that um i feel like a universe is something or conscious galaxies like surely that's been done before maybe know. maybe new who hasn't done it that much probably maybe, more yeah, than yeah, new, new, ha- new who hasn't done it the eu probably has you could probably find something um but yeah new new who hasn't done it as far as i can remember so uh, at least it's new to that you know and i can't expect well, the the grant the big um something in the rings of akatan is like uh, well, yeah it, well, it's not as big as a universe but but to be fair the solar track didn't really seem to have much scale to it <laughs> yeah Ch- chimler wrote 42 and that also had a conscious huge celestial entity the sun yeah. yeah there's a lot of talk about how the solar tract has made an entire world but it's basically just a house and a garden isn't it yeah <laughs> and like, like it's like meant to be people. a universe it's meant to be a universe but it's just this tiny little thing you know a it's, white room with a chair in it it is like you're meant to be i think part of the reason oh you're meant to be go oh my god it's a conscious universe you know it would have been a lot cooler if we'd if we'd gotten this idea of it was huge and it was you know the size of our universe because imagining something that big being conscious is you know it's a really cool idea but when all you get is like a tiny house and two people and a small garden and a fucking frog you know you lose the sense of scale therefore you lose the sense of wonder because then it it doesn't feel like a conscious universe then it feels like a conscious house with a conscious frog and conscious people and conscious garden you know it doesn't feel Mm. as cool as it should feel and i don't know maybe that's something again that's the fault of the writer and maybe the director or something you know know what's really 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 funny about this episode Uh, like whenever this happens because this happens in fandom a lot even now it always makes me laugh so much and it's that we had the usual crew coming out and saying that the solo track should have been rose oh (laughs) oh dear it's never gonna stop is it we're always gonna have these people saying billy piper should come back and play yeah, the, X character. The companion, Rose should come back. The companion that was there for um, less than a year. Uh, yeah, she's uh, definitely the most important. I definitely. actually find it kind of comforting that even in Chibnall's era, these people are still around, still saying the same stuff. They never give they up. Never give up. Rose as a solid track would have been basically almost identical to Rose as the moment in Day of the Doctor. Like, weren't they satisfied with yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's like... I d- I'm glad that they made it a frog so that we avoided all this potential like uh, drama because whichever character it chose, someone was going to get really angry about it, you know? Um, 
I haven't so, said anything like this yet, but honestly, I I loved the frog, and even on a rewatch, I still love really the, the frog. Cute. It's it's so adorable, isn't it? The way it moves yeah. in this really choppy way, it moves his little head. I love, okay. Oh, I love the little nod it does. It's like so fucking adorable. Oh my god. And it stuck out so much in series 11, just because, um, I mean, obviously I know Neo hates this because they drew attention to how weird it was in the episode, but like, just, 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 even just the fact they did something weird, a bit artsy, a bit yeah. visually odd, like it makes it stand out among series 11 so fucking much because series 11 has been so content to just be normal and not freaky no and just as, yeah, just, you know, no risk, you know, just as expected. So just, okay, here we go. Here's a frog on a chair. It's like a bolt out of the blue. I was like, holy shit, I can't believe They've done yeah. this. I, don't think it's I should show one of the others what's going on with this other universe. This is the last time I'll go in alone. After this, the next time I go in, I'll bring one of them with me. But for now. Uh, I think Haim wanted to double in a few concepts the Pan's Labyrinth texture of the anti zone and the sort of Douglas Adams ishness of the sentient universe dressed as a frog, lonely and in need of a friend. It ties together to, to the extent that it has to, but in each act we go from Cabin in the Woods to Pan's Labyrinth to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Even in that, the, the solo track disposition only begins three quarters of the way in, and the only one I believe that Haim was comfortable in was Hitchhiker's. The main thread of this episode, the Solitract tries disingenuously to gain affection from people by mimicking things they have loved from the past. This is a kind of meta-commentary so truthful and direct that it can't be done on purpose. Ed Heim perhaps should be congratulated for writing a script that has all the qualities of its main foe, which disguises itself with discarded notions of interesting sci-fi and fantasy to lure discerning fans, while under the surface there is, in a very real sense, nothing but a frog on a chair. More than any other Series 11 episode, I've struggled to retain details about it after a single watch, largely because of how perfunctory everything feels. The red flags can be found in the praise given by critics who say it's just like a Scandi Noir meets Black Mirror meets The Twilight Zone meets Stranger Things. These red flags are meant to attract sci-fi and fantasy fans who miss the days when this was a show about ideas, to activate the area in their brain that tells them I should like this, but distract them from the fact that there's nothing of substance beneath. Compare the frog to Douglas Adams all you like, but Douglas Adams always used strange imagery to communicate something about humanity, or relationships, or institutions, or the universe. Here, all the frog communicates is that saying goodbye is sad, and you didn't need a sentient universe to convey that message, it could have been anything. And frankly, a message that simplistic should be the starting point of an episode, not the climax. Alright, I'm, I'm heading, heading back. back. Next, Next go, go around, around I'll, I'll bring, bring one, one of the others, others in through with me. me. You know how much I get annoyed by people liking Doctor Who, and it's yeah. just insufferable to me how yeah. the frog is being treated as this Very like amazingly fine. abstract concept where you go back last series and we had at least three insane things like the mass suicide simulation in Extremis or the colony ship, you know, in and of itself, or you know, some other third thing. Like in Moth series, like we'd get at least three truly bizarre like unprecedented stuff every year unless we get a frog that's a conscious basically room like yeah it's it's cool and the frog was animated cute but this is like getting i think disproportionately uh overloaded with praise and even in the context of the episode itself like the episode is really proud of the frog you can tell in the dialogue 13 has about it 
And it's like, yeah, it's good that it is different and that it's more out there than the rest of Series 11, but I feel like we're pouncing on scraps a little bit here. Oh, At yeah. the same time, I feel like it's the sort of thing that some Doctor Who viewers you know, complain about because it's silly. Oh, we can't have the moon be an egg. Are talking frog on Doctor Who's finally jumped the shark? Because I feel that Series 11, yeah. even just doing something a bit like that is worth being a bit nice to. Well, that said, I don't agree that this is Douglas Adams-esque. Like, I know people are saying that, but he... Are it, they? He, he, yeah. I, I'm not going to name names, but I've seen quite a few names um, saying that. Adams was random, but he was never random, like, in the 2018 sense, just to be, like, random. Like... Yeah. XD. I think of the <laughs> oh. um, uh, what is it? The flo- the falling petunias in Hitchhiker's yeah. Guide, and, and the whale like, as well. Yeah, like that's random, but like the book doesn't explode with pride of that moment. Like it makes a quick gag and it moves on. It's not clamoured over as like the yeah, epitome of abstraction. Like weird and abstract concepts are good if they're just they're just part of the story without. Um, any attention being drawn to the fact that they are weird and abstract, you know, which is basically what you said, I suppose. Um, you know, I like the idea in, in like stories, Doctor Who stories, where there is just something weird, and that's just how it is, you know? Um, I guess, yeah, this ties in the it's a recruitment year thing. Like, if people yeah. do actually go through the back catalogue, can you imagine, even starting series one, like, the end of the world, that's a real mind-blown moment, I think, beyond mm-hmm. the frog. You know, the whole concept of the time war and then seeing Earth yeah. blow up, like that's a real and Cassandra full on thing. Yeah. But yeah. any RT, any random RTD character is weirder than anything we've got in series eleven. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, basically. So um then also I, I guess what they want in Chibnall's episodes, because again, recruitment year is they want to make it look they want to introduce these like, sort of weird things, but they don't want to go too far because it'll alienate mm. the audience, you know? I, then, I have such then, an issue with that. Like, yeah. that's not how you capture an audience. Yeah, Russell T. Davies. Being the same. Yeah, Russell T. Davies, he rebooted Doctor Who, and effectively, the vast majority, not maybe the vast majority, but a certain, a big chunk of the viewers for it were completely new to Doctor Who. So he was throwing all these weird concepts at them and just expecting the audience to accept it. You know, he didn't he didn't like sort of hold their hand and coddle them or anything like that, you know, didn't draw attention to how weird the concepts were. The concepts were just weird and that was how it was. Um, and that was really effective. I mean, look how good his era yeah. was. And, and that you was know what happened then year. is people copied Russell. People were copying his show and making shows yeah, like because- his show. Yeah, because it was, it was pushing the boat out. It was something new and exciting and creative. And um, it didn't ever, like, oh, talk down to the audience or go like that. Oh, guys, look how weird this is. Isn't, isn't this so weird? It's so strange, isn't it, guys? It's really cool, isn't it? Because it's so weird. You know, it didn't ever do that. It was more like, you know, just accept it. If you don't accept it, if you don't like it, then fair enough. It's not the show for you. Whereas Chibnall was trying to appeal to everyone, you know? Think of how Chibnall would handle the parade of aliens at the start of the end of the world. Like with the mocks of Balhoon and the adherence of the repeated meme. Can you imagine that? <laughs> How this would be done in series 11? Like 13 explaining everything about the oddities of their appearance, like immediately. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This race, this is why they look this way that they do, you know. Or, you know, essentially just reading off a Wikipedia page, you know? She would just do it for every single race. Uh, which I think is really boring. I think basically what I've said before did I say it before in this podcast uh, it's what I'm just I mean, emulating uh, Chibnall's dialogue oh yeah of course <laughs> just repeating the same thing over and over um, but I just think 
things in Doctor Who sometimes just better left up to the imagination because the moment you start over explaining stuff it sort of loses some of its magic and I think Chibnall is very guilty of this like terribly guilty of it which I think is a big shame this is um sort of a tangent but something that I feel like I have to say in this podcast is that the scene where um 13 has that long speech directly to the camera and which is her final kind of speech to the solid track and she's looking straight at us and there's a really long shot of her and she's like you have to let me go or it's going to destroy both of us I got such a sense that that was Doctor Who talking to the viewers <laughs> and saying you have to stop watching this is it yeah, it's over dead. like imagine um imagine something like that you know saying oh you have to let me go regeneration episode well she like <laughs> popped out of it and she like she started regenerating like something like that like it was really bizarre that such a sort of theatric loaded moment was talking to a frog on a chair you know the, the ratings really haven't gone as um i think hoped i would just say given what, what are they now like 5.7 or something yeah the overnights have gone down by three million ish i think the consolidators probably aren't that bad like i doubt it's really yeah. significantly below like series five but it's no, still it's, not it's... not the amazing rebirth that people perhaps imagine yeah yeah was it worth throwing was it worth disrespecting his chibnall just to get these few people over probably was worth think, it honestly but was it worth this trashing Murray and losing Series 10 soundtrack? Was it worth losing the Christmas special? Uh, I don't know. Especially the Christmas it's like, special. Um, sorry, uh, just a quick point. Like the show used to be really like high on your account, so essentially Chibnall is like stripping away what makes Doctor Who Doctor Who, uh, in the hopes of recruiting new people. But he doesn't have to recruit new people. He just has to recruit the people that were lost since, uh, like throughout Moffat's era. And people in Moffat's era theoretically if they came through Russell T Davies stuff and also the start of Moffat's they should be able to handle the weird concepts and the the things that make Doctor Who Doctor Who so he doesn't have to take all that away to get all these viewers in is what I'm saying yeah he's doing it anyway are there any other science fiction franchises that have pushed away like long-term original viewers in pursuit Um, of like blue ocean new audiences don't they all do that at some point (laughs) Star Wars sometimes Star Trek and some but but they've not had such a massive overhaul I think oh maybe they have actually never mind they have because Star Wars had the new trilogy and stuff but I don't but I don't think um the thing is all these all these other franchises Star Wars and Star Trek and you know whatever else those are the big ones I'm thinking of right now there is plenty more um all of them none of them did it with the intention of reigning in new viewers if that makes sense they just wanted to make yeah. more of the series and coincidentally because of the choices they made unintentionally they might have pushed away old viewers you know whereas Chibnall has went into this with the act of intention of yeah fuck all the old stuff let's make something new you know which is not yeah. something you should do in a show that has a legacy the Star Wars thing as well like it's constantly still attempting fan service like to as many segments yeah. as it can like the clone wars getting revived and like the sequels are full of original trilogy fan service no matter how it's received like yeah. the equivalent of some of that stuff would be like um again miniseries for doctor who like yeah. just pursuing new audiences is not really what other like even um star trek discovery it's like tying in a heaps of spock shit and stuff like yeah. doctor who isn't really doing i'm not saying it's a bad thing necessarily but doctor who isn't really acting like other sci-fi series and trying to yeah. court all the audiences it's just really going for the n- new ones yeah um which isn't 
necessarily a good thing though because I think there's a careful, careful balance essentially and any series that has a big legacy behind it you know like all these big sci-fi ones just or even just you know any show that has that's been going on for a while um excluding maybe soaps because they don't care uh you need to sort of have a good balance of appeasing the old fans and also giving stuff to the new ones uh and i feel like i don't know i feel like moffat was moffat and russell t davies were really good at that just because I mean, I'm not saying they were always perfect at it, but there was this thing like they'd have uh, references to classic stuff, and it was stuff that the the new viewers didn't have to know. But if you knew about it, it was like an amusing or you know interesting little tidbit. Um, whereas Chibnall has decided to give up on that entirely and just have none of the little like amusing bits for you know, continuing yeah. viewers and just all all the sort of new stuff. Um and that's fine. Like new ideas are always welcome. His new ideas are a bit shit, but you know, uh, maybe he'll improve. He won't. Um but I don't know. I feel like I feel like you just can't with a show like Doctor Who, you just can't disregard the legacy, especially with Doctor Who, because we're not dealing with linear time here, you know? We're not dealing with something that is, you know, like other sci-fi series where, you know, sure, you've got, you might have some weird concepts in it, but ultimately you've still got like, this point A to point B. Doctor Who is essentially just, you know, it's timey-wimey. You know, you can't, you can't ignore the legacy that goes before, yeah. because it's so... It just doesn't make sense in the context of the universe you're dealing with, you know. I don't it's, know if I explained that really well. I think perhaps the problem it's, it's is not even... a point. Yeah. Who talks first? Who talks first? Okay. 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 I think perhaps the problem is not even so much that Chibnall's going for new fans, is that he is not actually pursuing anyone in particular. He's taking. Yeah. He has, he has no vision. He has no idea of who he wants to get. Yeah. Yeah. He just. He wants to get everyone. So he's doing nothing. He's scared of doing yeah. anything specific. Yeah. Because. Don't yeah. you wonder sometimes about Chibnall's vision? <laughs> he, he just. He's like so terrified of alien. Alien. Alien anyone. He's terrified of aliens, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he fucking hates aliens. That's why we've got spiders and rags. Uh, but yeah, uh, he's so he's so scared of that. He just so scared of any sort of risk he takes at all that we just get boring. You know, boring he's, after boring this, after boring. This yeah, really boring. isn't the hill I actually am interested in defending or let alone dying on. But I do actually think the no returning monsters thing was a fairly substantial mistake in yeah. that. Like, Moffat and RTD all the time were able to... Like, Dalek is a tricky episode in how it reintroduces them because they had such cultural weight. Mm -hmm. But look how they reintroduced the Ice Warriors or the Cyberman or the Silurians. Like, it's really easy comparatively to introduce a classic monster in a way that it still makes them seem like they're a new monster. And, and yeah. you, get, you get the old fans happy and you get the new fans having a new monster that you already have a guideline on how to do or not do. Yeah. Like, I think, like, clearly Series 11 doesn't have a surplus of good villains. Like, we've had the Rags and the Stanza and the Spiders. Like, we've had no real great ideas apart from maybe the Tajarians, and they, they're arguably not even monsters. Like, yeah. I think it would have been worth throwing in at least a fucking Ice Warrior or a Sea Devil or something. I, I agree, because you also have this problem where Tubna was so insistent that everything be new. Um... You've a, you get this problem where series 11 ends up feeling like it's 
disconnected from the rest of Doctor Who, which is a not a good thing to do when you're dealing with the first female Doctor. You want to you want to make the first female Doctor feel natural and everything, and you know to just integrate into the rest of the show because ultimately it shouldn't be a big spectacle. At least in universe, it shouldn't be a big deal because the Doctor is still the Doctor, you know, and the fundamentals of the show are still there. But when you when you bring in this like sort of new concept and then also immediately get rid of everything from the old you know all the old concepts as well you end up getting a series that just feels a bit like a little bit separate you know and i'm not saying it's not separate because of jodie i need need to clarify that i think she's you know it completely makes sense female doctor that's great love it but when you take away everything that makes doctor Doctor Who, Doctor Who, which, by which I mean you sort of ignore the legacy. You've still got the TARDIS, you've still got Sonic, etc, etc. You're essentially... The tubular. You're putting... <laughs> it's tubular. Um, you're essentially putting a fence around it, you know? If that makes sense. Like, it, it's it's still connected, but it's also not. And I don't agree with yeah. what Chubnall's done. I think he it's, needed something yeah. like... Just bring in something from the previous series, you know? Daleks or Cybermen or just something to make it feel like it's all in a cohesive you know, storyline rather than something I think as much yeah, as I agree with what you're saying, as much as I think producers and audiences and a lot of people tried to, to deny this, this isn't the first series of the show, this is the 11th series, mm-hmm. like of those 5.7 million people that tuned in like last week, a lot of those people are people who've watched the last series, yeah. you know, maybe not all of it, but a substantial bit of it vast majority. This isn't a gross. new show yeah like i don't think it's the right i get trying to court a new audience but i don't necessarily think that pretending this is the first series of a show yeah is the right way to do that and i really resent the idea that series five was doing that because i really don't think that is what it was doing i don't think Five was very clever about it series five who masqueraded as a sort of quasi davies series then shuffled everything out behind the scenes Right, and I think yeah. argue, maybe maybe that's what Jodie needed as the first female Doctor, like a moment like Eleventh Hour when you know walking through the montage of old Doctors, or just some you know couching of it in the familiar while you, you know, quietly do the revamping. Because like Series Five, people will say it's like a soft reboot, and in a, in a sense, it almost is because you get the visual differences, you get the new Doctor, new companions. You know, initially there is no connection to you know, or at least no apparent obvious connection to Russell T. Davies stuff. But the difference is that immediately, like, when you've got this episode that feels a a little bit like a reboot, Moffat then goes on to integrate the eras, like, really well. He has all these classic references. He has the Russell T. Davies references and all that stuff. So even though maybe people argue, oh, yeah, Series 5 was a a bit of a reboot, like, it wasn't actually, you know? It had a visual difference because, like, they changed, like, um, changed, like, things like directors and all the cameras and all that rubbish. But ultimately, it just felt natural, you know? Um, It's still a sort of good sort of introduction to the show because the 11th hour just is but ultimately there's still enough references that you only fully appreciate series 5 and then onwards I guess um, with the knowledge from previous eras and not necessarily classic because classic is like a thing on its own but there are still references to classic which is you know I don't know I I just feel like it was better integrated and then series 11 is kind of like oh yeah you've got the first episode acting essentially like a a reboot feels more like of a reboot than 11th hour did because it doesn't have that connecting point of yeah you know showing the previous doctors or, or something like that um but you've got this issue where they never they never fix the fact that it feels like a reboot if that makes sense they never integrate it with the rest yeah. of the show so um so 
it could have worked really well if you had this first episode that feels sort of like oh it's fresh and new and everything but then it went back to something that felt sort of familiar i never did that um what i'm getting from you is that you did want the solo track to be rose yeah of course fucking love it no please no <laughs> i would hated that on so many levels but, would um, it be accurate to say that in series 11 the most basic ideas of the universe just get ruined to paraphrase 13 and it takes you away the yes. most basic ideas of how to write doctor who get ruined <laughs> for sure yeah. Throw it at the window man the writing on the wall was fucked up wasn't it oh yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, just writing note. Like, oh, also, I found it quite interesting that the writing on the wall, the, the two times it was showed, shown enough to read it, um, it wasn't shown fully. So you kind of had to. I don't know if this was just me. Maybe I'm stupid. I, I paused know, it to read yeah, it. Yeah, I, I paused it to read it the first time and then the second time as well. But the second time, I noticed there was like a word cut off in the first time or something, or, or there was part of it cut off, and then you could only see the full message when you got to the end, like the second time it was shown, which was really bizarre. Um, I, I mean, it was it was quite rude, you know. Yeah, it was cruel to exploit her blindness in that way. Yeah, yeah ex- exactly. All right, All right, I'm, I'm getting into DM about the other universe to code. Gig can't see this. Yeah. It could be my one editing advantage over She's replied. She, she too, too can, can see it now. We'll, we'll click it at the same time and go, go on, on in together. together. Here, Here we, we go. go. All right, no need to panic. <laughs> I wasn't panicking. I know, I was talking to myself, because all this is very wrong. Right, what do we know? This button is a direct portal between two worlds. We went into it in the real world. We came out of it in this world. But that anti-zone sprung up in the middle, splitting the portal in two. Like a buffer zone between the two worlds, right? Exactly. Because anti-zones only exist where the fabric of the universe is under huge, terrible threat. Oh. So that means that one must be to stop this world and your world from ever touching. But. Wait, that means that this world is dangerous, but how can it be dangerous? Also, what even has the power to create a copy world like this, unless... Oh, no actual way. Wait, no actual way what? I've told you about the Chibnall, right? I've literally never heard the word before in my life. Chibnall? Chibnall, it's a theory, a myth, a bedtime story my gig used to tell me. You had them in Giga? I had three, but Gig 3, my favourite, used to tell me about the Chibnall. Because in the beginning, pre-Jody, pre-everything, all the ideas and potential and quality and Kino of the series were there. Tyler Lay, Mathis and continuity and so on. But they couldn't fit together properly because the Chibnall was there. But like, what exactly is the Chibnall? Marketing. Writing. Our series cannot work with Chibnall writing present. The most basic ideas of television just get ruined. Think of it like an eighth series with Anderson, Samuel Anderson, who wants to join in but always ends up worsening everything else. Our series cannot work with the Chibnall in it. Your gag told you this is a bedtime story. Only when I had trouble sleeping. So, what did our series do? It managed to exile the Chibnall to a separate, unreachable existence, the Chibnall plane. And suddenly everything makes sense. The series could finally work because the Chibnall had been removed. No, 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 no. Wait, hang on. Are you saying we're now on the Chibnall plane? I wish I wasn't, but I think I am. I'm scared. Are you scared? 
I'm genuinely terrified. So this is like a separate exiled universe that's also a consciousness? That's what Gig 3 said, a conscious universe. He also said that Morph was a secret agent for the Nazis, but he seems bang on with this one. But why? Why has the Chimmel copied your world, including Morph and Tit, and built a doorway to our universe? Um, uh, Neil, you realise when you put it like that, it, it kind of sounds like a trap. Whoa, where am I? No computer, no code. I'm in some sort of cheap, cramped set masquerading as an entire universe. What's on that chair over there? It looks like a head with a bunch of fake hair on top. The Chibnall in a wig? Hey Chibnall, what happened to your hair? It doesn't seem to um, have much to it. it, it hasn't improved that much. There's me thinking the day had no more surprises left. Now, please, tell me of your series. It's a recruiting video for us to go, <laughs> that's all this year is. That's all you have to say? What about your episodes? What about the premiere? I still felt that that story was fairly um, boring. What about the ghost monument? I still felt that that story was fairly um, boring. What about? I still felt that that story was fairly boring. And I still felt that that story was fairly boring. What about episode five, the one with the pating? Was that one just boring too? It was also very cliched. It was very routine, running up and down corridors and silly monsters. What about the Doctor Thirteen, Jodie Whittaker? Is she just boring? Pillar as well? of hope. We need a pillar of hope in these times, and that. Pillar of Hope is Jodie Whittaker. That's not saying anything. What do you actually think of her? She is, um, admittedly, a very good actress. She just has to restrain herself a bit more. She seems very theatrical at the moment. That's all? Do you have anything else to say about your series? It could have been a lot better. It could have been slightly better written. Slightly. Do you know what I want, Chibnall? You can spew whatever nonsense you want into my right ear, but into my left ear, I want you to tell me what I want Series 11 to be. Better written. Pillar of Hope. Better written. Very cliche, better written. Pillar of hope, better written. Very cliche, better written. Pillar of hope, better written. Very cliche, better written. Pillar of hope, better written. Very cliche. Um, but I still felt that that story was fairly um, boring. Better written. Pillar of hope, better written. Very cliche.